0: The title of this evening's talk is The Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. This evening we'll be exploring one particular aspect of the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana. In relationship to the wholesome and unwholesome, excuse me, the unwholesome and afflictive emotions that manifest in us. It's one aspect of dukkha. And we'll also be looking at the uh, process of transformation and relinquishment of these afflictive states. In a quote from, uh, I'm think it's a Zen teacher, but I actually don't know who. <laughs> Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor, uh, um, addressed this question and um, uh, he said that often when he's asked this question, which he said he's often asked, uh, his, his response is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define uh, realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization of Nibbana, being the complete purity of the heart, the mind, has been described as the heart, the mind, of an arhat. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak about this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in really truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Saida Upandita and with the venerable Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of the same possibility in similar ways over and over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, uh, the Buddha also often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom. He speaks of it in a very similar way as our own confidence grows and as it deepens, we, too, begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as living a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know to really directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and through our mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease. And we begin to find that, at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go of, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more and more readily available. Manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and these practices takes deeper and deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to the practice in the immediacy of here and now, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome. One can cultivate the wholesome. If if it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom and metta and compassion of the Buddha The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them, rather than condemning them. And the heart-mind the of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be quite a great inspiration, inspiring the feelings of self confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and the practices. And when I've been able to be really very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, my practice, myself, in that way, then my love and and gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. This is what the Buddha taught. Once, in a practice interview with uh, Venerable Pawak Saidao, I went in and I said to him, this is just too hard. It's just too hard. And Saidao looked at me with this great kindness in his eyes that's there almost all the time, and a kind of a light laughter underneath these kind eyes. And he said, very simply, he looked at me with that wonderful, expression and said, no it isn't. That's all he said. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are actually filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom in search of liberation from anguish and confusion his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering he wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or some philosophical stance so these skeletons in the closet. The old and sometimes seemingly new uh, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. It's, It's a long list. From our present life's experiences, and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. And some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden them away. In our practice we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. But very important, it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Maybe, maybe, there are some people who seem to be able to find a really true happiness, a true ease of being, without ever letting out the skeletons. And I say, great for them. But I have never met anyone like that. Really, most all of us need to discover the skeletons, so to say, in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. (laughs) Or we'll continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes, to uncover what may have been hidden or that maybe we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that maybe we've been hauling around for a long time, often unconsciously or unwittingly, the author Stephen Mitchell <coughs> uh, created his own version of the myth of Sisyphus, and I'd like to share this with you. We tend to think Sisyphus as a, uh, think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock, sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion, each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and from the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us then to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in kindness, the kindness of a non-judgmental presence. Our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachments, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need, for instance, to analyze it over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourself with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude, we begin to realize that, in fact, none of these reactive habit patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing that this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms, so to say, with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past maybe 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up but never soddens what is open. Uncover, then, what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And some words from a Sri Lankan monk, Bhante Gunaratana, from his book Mindfulness in Plain English. And he says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I added, within the heart of kindness. so we quietly sit and watch ourselves, And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change, they must come to the surface and be accepted and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest takes care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance and resistance is based in fear and it can be kind of a vicious circle and so we practice with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and relinquishing relinquishing our conditioned habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a a bit of a look now um, at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life. Which is quite directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to Difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet we often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future and often solidifying both in our mind. And yet, life just keeps flowing, just keeps flowing and rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. In uh, Taos, New Mexico, where I live, <clears throat> during the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in the big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arcs of rainbows appearing, often double rainbows, actually. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, and the angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart, and mind are really like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative-related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows, if you've ever observed the rainbow through its whole process. It's very obvious but not so much for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably eventually bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything, anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. And the other side of the coin, uh, of course, is anything that we push away or avoid or ignore or resist will cause some degree of suffering in us. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. A saying we have in English that I'm sure most of you know is, Ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. And in fact, with ignorance, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing, because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the truth, the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or an absence of true understanding. And it's experienced as what's called mental blindness or mental darkness, the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So now I'd like to go on exploring just a few of the hues of the rainbow of emotional states beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as maybe feeling like I won't attend to. I won't open to. I don't want to. Or maybe feeling like I can't be with, or I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience, or this old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or this pain in the body, or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe sometimes feeling frozen or feeling caught or just simply unable to open and to receive the experience really fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. And if we take it up, if we really believe it, it will show up that way. It's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, or maybe not doing it right, or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, probably different than how most of us have been conditioned to uh, think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from the Taoist master Chang Tzu. And this is his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman, or man, is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore the perfect woman or man can act without effort." Maybe we have a habit of getting caught in identifying with the mind of judgment or doubt or blaming, criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others. Which actually is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to really look directly at it. Especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it really hasn't been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he responded to me and said, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this, my inward response, I didn't say this out loud to this teacher, I said, well, that's easy for you to say obviously some degree of resistance and and a fair amount of irritation, actually, in those inner thoughts. But eventually I began to see that fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our mindfulness-based practice, rooted in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. Hafiz, the 12th-century Persian poet, said this. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger and our mind and heart gets stronger and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we may see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see and never know. And it may be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not something solid, not something permanent, and not me, and not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear. We learn to lose the fear of fear itself. And we begin to see it clearly. We see through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. somewhere within this past uh, year or two, not too long ago, I read an article in National Geographic magazine (coughs) about a woman, uh, primarily the article was about a woman named Garland, a 40-year-old woman who was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without any oxygen. It was a very interesting article, and in it there were two short uh, pieces about her husband Ralph, who was also a mountain climber, who didn't do this climb with her, and uh, about Garland in relationship to their relationship to fear. So I'd like to read this to you uh, with Ralph. He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. When Garland reached the top of K2, without oxygen as I mentioned, she took out the little Buddha that she had in her pack and placed it on top of K2. She is a practicing Buddha. The Buddhist teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They eventually just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks them, and it tends to deaden our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice about purposely dredging up or or miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy, intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away, or pulling away from experience, or desiring the experiences to be different. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is uh, likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, a very powerful energy. And from this perspective, then, it can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger, and in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy woman. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her, and then they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they would move away from her. She was a very lonely person, and yet so identified with her, uh, in her mind as an angry person, and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the angry one. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective pretty much vanish. One often feels very restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's quite tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line's been drawn that isn't to be passed, with each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger then in the mind stream. Something that's really amazing and simple and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate, develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed." Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up, that shows up in relationship to our experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality and the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. Is made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations. All of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or maybe self-judgment or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment. It's very helpful to just try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expressions of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer to the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. So what are you feeling? Well, maybe heat. Maybe tightness, pressure. Maybe heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction in that case. Really give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance and kindness and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Maybe do some walking meditation. You might walk even a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with the walking. Or you might open up, go outside and open up to the natural world out there. The expanse of the fields and the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really, really take an interest. Notice the birds, the little bunnies, the insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Really stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It just isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is really amazing. It's really beyond compare in a very quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Garolin's relationship to fear. And again, the Indian, uh, great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often, as some of you may know, he taught in dialogue with his students. <coughs> And in this case, it's a dialogue. The student asks him, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers and frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. The energy isn't lost in the purification and the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that's exclusively or maybe predominantly in pursuit of one's own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein really lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging. Attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, when our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide economic and environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things should be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And of course there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's in part what got you here to be practicing here at the forest refuge. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a a prayer, uh, a personal practice I was told, of Mother Teresa's. And this was uh, sent to me by someone who thought that I would uh, find it, probably thought that I would find it helpful for myself and also interesting. I'm going to change just at the first line. She says, deliver me, O Jesus. I'm saying, deliver me, O (laughs) Dhamma. Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected." I don't think she left one thing out. Very soon after I uh, got this in the, in the mail and I read it, I got a telephone call from a friend and I said, oh, I have to read you this. I just got this in the mail. So I read it out loud to him and his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. <laughs> well, true. Yeah, there's a lot to do. But I find it really inspiring, actually. I think he did too, but his first reaction was, oh. Many of us can become quite attached, uh, attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire, and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on uh, to something or to get it back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing maybe even here in retreat, for some of you. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you experienced in your last retreat or even some years ago in your practice. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment The self-centeredness, the identification around desire, that's the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So a simple, quite mundane, personal example. Some years ago I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that uh, has some of the most uh, wonderful flower gardens I've ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell very present, aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go do something else, but I really just wanted to stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging, and not being willing to let go and to simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone and I was experiencing some tightness in the body and a degree of a burning uh, irritation in the heart and the mind. I got up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next, but there was still a, a clinging to that sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience at that point. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back planning, in fact, when I could get back to that garden and imagining, oh, how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment before was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, really a moment of suffering. And it happens very quickly. To sustain and to deepen with our practice two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing and knowing are actually mutually totally incompatible. as we begin to see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people there's often some degree of confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment, that it feels good. And it's even sometimes confused with love until we really begin to see it and know it clearly. What is ease, happiness? What is it really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. And even much more important, it's a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of release from the stress of clinging, liberation, through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on this way through each of the six sense doors. He went on to say, then, burning of what? And as he did, responded to his question, burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear." burning with the fire of confusion. Quite a few years ago now I found a recipe from a man named Fred (coughs) Moramarco. And at risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to uh, share this recipe with you. It's called a recipe for unhappiness and the ingredients is this. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. Half a pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. (laughs) One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection and four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. (laughs) Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, Add it to what is, an inability to accept what is, and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. (laughs) The Buddha offers us another recipe the recipe for cultivating a strong, clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation rooted in kindness. That means that the experience of the moment, we see it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see right through them. We see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. And one way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And from the Mahayana Vimalakirtri Sutra, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this a teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult emotions. Many strong and difficult energies, emotions the mud banks of passions, we could say. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons, so-called poisons, being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So for just a brief moment, looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self. No self-grasping transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without this self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, without self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion and equanimity, bringing us the capacity then to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in the mind and heart. The place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. With nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment, just as it is, is just enough. As our practice goes on over time, We begin to know, through our own experience, the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And closing the talk this evening with a poem uh, by a man named Roger Keyes, and the title of the poem is Hokusai Says. Hokusai, some of you may know, was a, a very famous Japanese painter. And his famous painting, the most famous painting, is of a very huge wave, uh, which is predominant in the painting, and very small underneath this huge wave. The wave looks like claws as it's coming over, and underneath is a little tiny boat with some fishermen in it. And this is the poem. The poem's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you. And we'll uh, close our evening together by chanting the uh, sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.